and welcome to this special episode of the podcast Leading Virtual Teams. Um, today I have a very special guest here with me and this is a special episode celebrating the launch of my book Leading Virtual Teams which we're celebrating this week. So instead of the usual format this is much more of a conversation about the book itself and how it came to be and also a little bit more about the writing process overall. Now, my guest today is my partner and fellow author, Martin Weller. Hi, Martin. Hi. Congratulations on the book. Yay! <laughs> I'm very excited. Excellent book. Pleased to see it come out, finally. Well, we thought we'd talk a bit about the book today. Um, we've had many conversations over the past two years about the book and what it is mm -hmm. about. Um, and I'm particularly interested to talk a little bit about reflecting with you about virtual learning and virtual working and yeah. sort of the parallels there and I'm going to put you on a spot in a minute and kind of start you off with that and then in part two of the session we're going to talk more about the writing process itself and kind of share some reflections and ideas um, that worked for us as we um, been writing books this year and Martin has published a book recently as well Correct. metaphors of edtech so if you haven't already um shameless plug definitely read this and um yeah so today though we're talking about my book mm -hmm. That's right. so let's jump in virtual yeah. learning virtual working where yeah, do you well, want to start as you say I think we've had many conversations we have two dogs and often our dog walks are filled with these kind of conversations so yeah if you and I are out of action, I'm sure our dogs can talk about these subjects <laughs> in depth. They've heard it, I've heard it a lot of times. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I, so I wrote a book this year, a published book this year called Metaphors of EdTech, which as the title might suggest, is about metaphors of education technology. But a lot of that book was written in and after the, the pandemic or after the lockdown. Um, and so it tries to sort of talk, there's a bit of it that tries to talk about how um, there's this reaction to kind of go back on campus mm -hmm. um, to face-to-face -face learning is the only way to learn and the kind of what we talk about the lecture deficit model you know everything that's compared to the lecture um, and anything that falls short of that is, is necessarily not as good and I think it's interesting as you've been talking about your book we've seen a similar for want of a better phrase that the office deficit model you know the, the office is, is the default mode um, and everyone must go back to us and, and, and that, that kind of doesn't really often Sub survive a sort of a question of well why like, no because that's how we do it so I just wondered you know, whether you felt whether you've seen that similar drive to you know, people must go back to the office kind of regardless just because it's almost like that's a default behavior I think um absolutely I think we have seen I think companies you know who are paying very handsomely for mm -hmm. office spaces and you know in the UK in this particular time the heating of those office spaces yeah. too you know being keen that use is being made I think we're hearing a lot about I was at the um, online educa conference last week mm -hmm. and we talked a lot about you know what you lose when you go online that quality of collaboration that quality of connecting with people how important that is and I'm not sure personally, I'm totally convinced that you can't do things just as effectively online. I've seen, you know, an experience that working really well if you put a lot of effort yeah. in and you have a lot of skills and the right sort of circumstances. But one of the things I've been reflecting on this week is when I started, you know, blogging about being a virtual team and when we made the transition to being a virtual team in 2018, 
it seemed entirely unusual. Yeah. You know, people ask me all the time, so where's your office? Where's your HQ? What's your address? You know, where do you get your mail sent? The idea that you would have no permanent base, which now seems kind of like a no-brainer, seemed very unusual, and that wasn't very long ago. Yeah, that's right. I remember that transition. Uh, yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. That it makes us question a lot of the things that we used to take for granted now, it's like you know, whether it's work or learning. It's like I get invited to meetings. You think I used to like say we live in Cardiff, you know, get invited to go to a meeting in Manchester, like and spend all day going up for a two-hour meeting and coming home again. And now that just wouldn't seem normal. It's like if someone asked you to do that, you think, why? Why would I travel that far? And so I think one of the advantages or outcomes or you know, results of this whole process is that it's made people, I think, at least question the, the, the default mode. And, and I think in some ways it's flipped it to online being the default mode. But I, I just wondered whether you know, we talk about hybrid working and hybrid learning. Yeah. Or, and that of, people often promote that as the kind of best of both worlds. But I wonder if you had any thoughts about how it might be the worst of both worlds as well, in a way. One of the real crunch points to me is, <clears throat> excuse me, still having a bit of a cold, so you can probably hear that in this recording. <clears throat> but one of the crunch points is really about operating a hybrid workplace with policies that are really for an office. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, if you have an expenses policy, for example, that permits you certain types of travel, um, but then doesn't permit you to buy something for an online meeting, yeah. um, you know, that's a really good example. Or GDPR is a really boring but really important part of securing home working. And many organizations that made the transition to home working as a crisis response mm -hmm. in 2020 obviously didn't have time to put all these policy into place and they're now kind of improvising on top of what is generally quite a traditional model yeah. particularly in education we're basically allowing flexibility within a traditional model of this is your workplace yeah. um, and one of the things i try to do in the book is to unpack practically what is actually involved when you make this transition intentionally mm -hmm. as my organization did and what sort of steps do you take along the way so, you know, one of the examples that is maybe quite boring sounding, but really important is display screen equipment and health and safety in your workstation. Um, in 2020, no one risk assessed their kitchen table whilst they were homeschooling their kids and also trying to keep their jobs going. But in the long run, when people start, you know, having backache, neck ache, accidents at home working, yeah. you know, these things take on a bigger significance. And... I think the long-term strategy of hybrid working is, I think, an extremely expensive one because mm -hmm. you basically have to have both yeah. and mix and match. And for many employers, particularly small or medium-sized businesses like the one I work for, it's just not viable to do the best of both worlds mm -hmm. all the time. So what we've come up with is a blended model that is mainly online yeah. and has that as the default and mixes in some face-to-face -face, um, team days, meetups, individual catch-ups. Um, and we feel that that's an effective strategy um, for the size of organization we are and the resources that we have. Yeah, I like to, um, in terms of online learning, I like to think of it as kind of a set of sliders that each institution might adjust kind of more online or less online kind of for, for any individual course or, or structure. 
wants to do. But I think it's um, in, it's difficult for institutions, both in education and uh, organisations, at the particular moment they're kind of caught in this middle ground that they may they may know where their long term goal is of a kind of a, a more online offering or a more distributed team. But at the moment they say they still got maybe contracts to run buildings and stuff. You know, I know my, my university thinks we're we're mothballing some buildings over over the winter period because of heating costs and those kind of things. And I think people are kind of caught in these dual economies. And I wonder if you had any thoughts about you know how organisations can go from where they are now, kind of which is they say building on top of the the kind of crisis response to a, a more sustainable model where they want to get to. It's interesting um, to consider. I, I don't know if anybody really has the answer. Um, I think, you know, there are some real constraints, I think, for businesses of any kind as well, as like in, you know, like we have quality assurance and funding regulations for mm -hmm. education. Similarly, we have lots of rules and regulations around work. So, for example, you know, we have to keep our financial records for seven years and you can't keep them electronically. You have to keep them in paper format right. so if you're a university i'm assuming that your storage needs are significant mm -hmm. student records staff records financial records assessment records um i wonder whether we're going to see a lot of storage facilities <laughs> popping up um but you know there's no i think really easy way forward what i what i think we do know is that the skills piece is really key to mm -hmm. making it work so I think regardless of what you do with your real estate, what you do with your skills and how you transition your staff into full-time, long-term, hybrid or mainly virtual working is a much bigger challenge. Mm. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in is how the skills that you need for online working change over time. Yeah. So in the book, I explore some examples that highlight how you know, for the first month or maybe the first year, you usually have a kind of reserve of knowledge and expertise mm -hmm. within your institution or your department or your team from the before times, yeah. the times when you still had an office, when you were still working around a table together that you can build on and you can kind of coast on that for a while. I think for our team, the period came about 18 months in where you know, it became suddenly a lot harder mm -hmm. because we didn't have a reserve of that anymore to draw on. And then suddenly we realized that certain things were so much harder to do online than in person. Mm -hmm. And those things you may not never do, you know, like strategy building, for example, you may only do that every three to five years, but it is so much harder to do online. And I think that is where during the pandemic we saw kind of really quick uptake, sort of like, yay, we can hang on, we can do this. Yeah. And that's fantastic. And I commend everyone who made that transition. But I think two or three years down the line now, we're looking at a much more sustained effort that is needed to upskill staff, not just to do their jobs, but also to communicate, to collaborate, to manage people. As you know, managing people online is one mm -hmm. of my, you know, key areas of interest. So yeah i think that is the that is the real issue for me yeah. perhaps to kind of bring it to a smaller focus one of the things i really like about the book are the very practical tips and bits of advice you give and i think again the kind of parallel with online learning there is that when you've been doing online learning for a while you sort of take you sort of think oh, everyone knows how to do this but actually yeah. when someone comes to it new there's kind of quite a lot of 
things to learn just on how to make these things work and i think we've had this conversation often on our dog walks and about how in a physical space the the architecture does a lot of the work for you and yeah. when you go online you have to kind of do all those things explicitly and that's whether it's kind of around to kind of small informal chats and those kind of things so i wondered if you, you know so i think for instance in online learning one of the things we often build in are these icebreaker activities at the start of course right. just, just so students can make that social connection which you probably don't have to do in a campus situation that they'll, they'll make that connection by just bit standing in the corridor before the lecture or going to a seminar or hanging around in the coffee bar or whatever you know so i wonder if you kind of had any of those what you think are kind of really good tips for people starting out and trying to build that team dynamic online oh absolutely and there are loads of examples that i love in the book mm -hmm. that you know colleagues and my own um, team have shared with me that I've included um, anything from having virtual pizza night yeah. to walking around um, where you live sharing pictures um, there are a lot of asynchronous activities around postcards and sending each other things that you can use um, but my top tip would really be to try and get a sense of what working from wherever they're working their home or their coffee shop or wherever that is is like for someone else I think you very quickly and easily forget that other people have completely different situations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've moved house several times since starting to work from home permanently. And sometimes I've worked, you know, with my laptop propped on a washing basket, having meetings. And it looked just as respectable in the blank wall behind me as it does when I'm in my fully set up home office. Um, some of my colleagues who have got, you know, a lot of family caring responsibilities or young pets or something have a completely different dynamic at home mm -hmm. than you know if you have a dedicated space and any activity that can in a you know friendly and inclusive way give people a chance to share something that defines how they work from home yeah. i think can really help build that real connection yeah. um rather than just saying oh you know post your favorite music or gif in the slack channel which you know i'm not yeah. saying is a negative thing like that can be really effective too but i think if you don't know someone and they're new in your team or it's a new kind of working online situation trying to get a feel for what their reality feels like to them every day is i think really key yeah um, so perhaps we should just end this section with we talked about some of the issues and some of the problems but let's let's be positive so i think you know online learning uh, like online working is great for many things. And I think one of the key areas, of course, both of them is, is flexibility. So you know, I like to say, with, you know, at the Open University, we have our students can study when they need to, and that's really yeah. good for students who have, you know, jobs. They're often studying part time, or they're studying away from home, or they have care responsibilities, and that kind of flexibility really works for them. And, yeah. You know, and it doesn't work for everybody, and it also requires a kind of degree of responsibility on their behalf. But I think that that flexibility. And particularly with an asynchronous approach that we have generally is really powerful for our students i wonder you know what's what's some of the good things about online being a virtual organization that you think really work for you or for your team well i think it really opens up opportunities you know mm -hmm. we now employ um people from loads of different places where before we could only employ people who were living close to our office mm -hmm. and that i think is invaluable also you know my experience is that it does open up a lot more flexibility for, um, particularly as we employ mostly part-time people, um, 
for people who have other interests, other responsibilities, maybe you study on the side or look after family on the side, or just want to have a bit more work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Work-life balance is a two-edged sword, I think, mm -hmm. in working from home, provided you can get it right. It's amazing, um, but it is work in progress for everybody, I think. But for me, one of the real wins for being a virtual organization is that you can have an opportunity to rewrite existing power structures and one of the reasons why i wrote the book is that i couldn't find a book that was about leading people in a virtual team which wasn't just about how you best translate your status and power structures from the fancy corner office mm -hmm. which you know i never had personally but you know which the people who write these books have want you to aspire to into an online realm and i think you have the opportunity to reinvent your workplace yeah. and you have a lot more freedom to do that which is what i think is really exciting and that's why you know we started blogging about our journey that's why we wanted to share that practice because we wanted to say we're a really small organization with limited resources but we are going to try and reinvent what we do and how we do it Yep. So, yeah, join us in part two, where we're going to be talking a little bit more about how that journey came to be and the story of the book. Welcome back to the special episode of Leading Virtual Teams with my very special guest, Martin Weller. Um, we were just talking about how sharing the journey to becoming a virtual team and blogging about that was the foundation for this book. Mm -hmm. And... I initially blogged about this transition with my former colleague, Martin Hawksey, and more recent years, I blogged about it on my own. And then recently I had the fantastic opportunity to work with um, the team at Reclaim Hosting and with Lauren Hanks on the course Hex for Hybrid Working, where we also blogged a lot about the upsides of hybrid working and mm -hmm. being a virtual team. And when it came to, to starting work on this book, um, those blog posts really formed the foundation. So I think um, I copied it all into one document and it was like 90,000 words worth of blogging. Um, very few of those words have made it unedited into the yeah. final book. Um, but I found, you know, this really fantastic to be able to look back at, you know, what I thought then in 2018, 2019, and revisit my thoughts and do research inspired by those. Um, so I thought we could talk a bit about that, sort of the process of sharing practice, writing books on top of that. And I must admit that some of my blog posts from 2018 or 19 really made me laugh. Like, I think one of the things that really amused me was that originally, I think we thought <clears throat> the entire team would meet at least once a week. In the next blog post, it then became meeting once a month. And I think in the blog post six months in, it became meeting every three months, which mm -hmm. is what it has be remained since then. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, written three books, four books maybe, that have been based off blog posts. And it was never intentional for any of those to kind of become books. Um, you know, I've been a blogger for a long time and... And I think you know, part of the process of being a blogger is you just recording your thoughts as you go along. Yeah. And so um, my previous book was 25 Years of EdTech, which was related to alt. So when it was 25 years of alt, um, I decided to do a blog post taking a, a technology per year that alt had been around, sort of using that to explore themes. 
And then people say, oh, I'm really enjoying that series. Why don't you turn that into a book? I thought, yeah, there's a book there, you know. And actually, that was a really useful thing to do. And I, I think, you know, like you, sitting down to write a book is a very daunting thing. You know, if you're going to sit and say, okay, now I've got to write 80,000 words or 50,000 words or whatever. But um, so I took all the blog posts I had. And, and the same with the metaphors. You know, I, I got to a certain point and thought, I write about metaphors a lot. I wonder if there's a book there. Um, and I just gathered up all the things I'd written vaguely on that topic and stuck them in one big word document. I think I had about 30,000 words. Um, and really all that's about, I think, is kind of giving you momentum, giving you some inertia to kind of escape the <laughs> escape the gravity of having nothing to write or having the, the blank page. And, and like you, I think it's, it's rare that actually you end up with the same words in the book. Um, I think it's always been an interesting thing to note. I think the, the tone of writing a blog, the tone of writing a book are very different, even though you know, um, I think my book and your book are quite informal in nature. They're not kind of really solid kind of academic pieces of work. They're kind of much more informal and, and that. But I think even then that the tone of a blog is much kind of chattier and you probably throw in some jokes maybe that, that just don't work in books. I've always found it interesting the way that those things vary, that sort of tone. So... Yeah, certainly. I think if anyone's thinking of writing a book, and that's my big bit of advice. Be, be a blogger first, you know, and you're sort of really helping to break that down. I think so. Yeah, blog. And I, I, <laughs> it's not just a case I think, of getting your blog post and just turning the handle. And there's a book. Some people do that. Often, when people write really good blog posts, kind of really research them, they're almost like collected essays. Like you know, many, yeah. many <clears throat> sort of writers collect their essays together. But I think you know, when you're doing this more, kind of thought shrapnel kind of thing or just throwing things off i think then uh when you gather them together what the book gives you is an opportunity to kind of go deeper in each of those and explore them and just say sort of use them as a starting point to kind of go much further yeah i agree and i think for me <clears throat> excuse me one of the things i like the best about the blog posts was that it reminded me what it really felt like mm. at the time and what some of the real issues were that, you know, I encountered. Like I remember the first time I had like an HR crisis and I couldn't meet the person, you know, there was no way we could meet. Or, you know, the first time the internet went down altogether mm -hmm. or, you know, when we ran an event and no one had the internet because, I don't know, a UK network was down. <clears throat> I think it was really... I forgot a lot of yeah. how sort of, you know, in quotation marks, Wild West it felt for <laughs> a while, mm -hmm. you know. And also I forgot how small times like being able to convene online and everybody joining in and feeling good for all involved was like such a milestone. I think the aftermath of the pandemic has really sort of conflated all of this time into one big chunk of... Yeah you know, before COVID, and now we are, well, hopefully increasingly post, you know, at least pandemic COVID. And I've really forgotten how much valuable sort of small steps we made that, you know, proved to be fundamental. Um, but also, I think it inspired me a lot in the research for the book, sort of looking up the, you know, the facts and figures and the wider context of things that at the time were just practical problems. And the book, the research I did gave me an opportunity to dive a bit deep and dive a bit deeper. Yeah, I think your point about going back <clears> and uh, looking at the previous posts. Sometimes I go back and I think 
what was I thinking? Like, particularly, I think, you know, particularly on, on the internet, you know, stuff that was fast from like four or five years ago can seem like ancient history in a way. It's like you know, some of my posts around the web 2.0 exposure, like, yeah, this is going to change and we're going to do this. And we're kind of really hopelessly utopian. And I think now I look back, what was I believing? <laughs> but then other times I look back and think, oh, yeah, that was good. I wrote a good piece there. Yeah. So, and you've pulled together. And, and also, what's really useful sometimes is when people have come into the comments and like giving you links and, yeah. and suggestions and things. And, oh, actually, that's, I can dig into that now much more. So, this kind of record of, of your thoughts, you know, yeah. even though it might be embarrassing sometimes or like, you know, slightly naive or whatever, I think it's actually really useful as a, as a process to go through. Well, I, um, my book was blogged twice because uh -huh. obviously the original posts are all out on, on the blog. And then I blogged the drafts of the book along the way and yeah. posted monthly updates where I shared all the draft chapters. And you know, some of them are very rough drafts mm -hmm. as I was trying to find a voice to write the book in. Um, and given that this was a passion project that I did in my spare time, evenings, weekends, um, you know, I've when I started publishing the drafts, you know, they were they were very much first attempts. So it was, I think, fascinating to get kind of people's reactions and questions along the way. And it makes it a bit less scary now that, mm -hmm. you know, the book is coming out this week in its kind of most final form yet. And I'm sure there'll be typos and things I can improve on in a second edition. But I'm really surprised how much the final product has moved on from the yeah. original blog posts. It's a very vulnerable process, I think, as well, kind of sharing stuff when it's not in a kind of perfect form or hasn't been through many copy editors and critical readers. And I think often that's a bit of privilege comes with that. I think that sometimes it's easy to do that depending on who you are, but I think it is a kind of quite a vulnerable process. And generally, you know, I've found people to be supportive, not like you know, what you're doing, you idiot, what, what you're saying here. But I think you're right. In some ways it, it is a kind of almost distributed critical reading process. Then by the time you come to write, reveal the actual book, it's not like no one's seen any of this yeah. before. You know, it's like a, a big unveiling. It's like you know, bits of it have been out there. And I think also just from the kind of, we're all our own marketers now. Kind of, it helps, I think, kind of generate some interest around that topic. You know, people know this is coming and they're looking yeah. forward to it. It's not a surprise. You can build up some momentum to, to the book, I think. Well, I think I was actually more nervous about sending the book to um, my staff team, my current mm -hmm. colleagues, uh, former colleagues, and, you know, my trustees, because obviously many of the examples of the book are from the organisation I represent. And... Um, I think I was very nervous about sharing the, you know, the draft book with them. And I was so grateful for their really generous input and comments. You know, I had a lot of helpful ideas um, about how to improve the book, how to make it more complete, kind of things that, you know, I'd taken kind of as read to weren't clear enough. So I was really grateful. And there are, you know, um, quite a few very successful authors and researchers um, that took the time to mm -hmm. read it and help me provide help provide feedback. Um, so I am grateful for that. I think I was quite nervous. We had a kind of two month peer review process mm -hmm. with like 15 people. So, um, you know, and they gave up their time to, yeah. to read and, and look at that, which I'm grateful for. But, you know, these things are never perfect. And I think even the first um, sort of final copy that I approved, I then started recording the preview of the induction for this podcast and then promptly found a typo. Yeah, so right. it's never perfect. But um, I think 
it's really encouraged me to value that type of thinking and that type of writing again. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder before we wrap up this section, if you have any thoughts on kind of, you know, what you most enjoy or what you get out of sitting down and taking those blog posts that are, you know, ultimately already in the public domain and reshaping them into a book. Yeah, a few things. I think, you know, I'm a book lover. So like writing a book is kind of like an achievement in itself. You know, I still value books as things. So being able to sort of point to a book on my shelf, you know, and say, I wrote a book. It's it's childishly uh, pleasing still. But I think, you know, more seriously, I think it's kind of really a good opportunity to kind of dig deeper into a subject and and to, to generate themes. So when I did the 25 years or the metaphors book, I think although there's kind of like very discrete chapters that you can sort of take as your own, it allows you to kind of then extract themes. I mm-hmm. think. Um, and I think it really helps you to be a person who says something about a particular topic. You know, it's like, um, and I think you know a blog does that too. You know, over a period of time, you know, your blog generates a kind of identity. But I think uh, the good thing about a book is it's a nice kind of discrete piece of output you can point to and say, I wrote this on this subject. Now, if you're looking for some some references or something to, to use in this particular situation you know, I've, I've done that and I think that that just helps you establish an identity maybe and I think that there's probably a bit of ego in there as well you know I think undoubtedly but you know but I, I like the process I think it's rare I think when we're although I like writing blog posts or I write reports or even research papers often things you do in between other stuff you know mm. and uh, I think a book does give you a bit of that time you know, I'm a big fan of the writing retreat you know, sort of just you can find a week, even just a week, you know, I think to go away, but that's the only thing you do. It's kind of, it's so productive when that's when you really get into a, into the writing process and you're thinking about it all the time. And, that, and um, yeah, and, and it makes you feel like a, a proper author, I think, you know, so I think that that's really valuable for, for your sense of self and I think your worth as well. Well, join us in a minute for part three, um, final part of this podcast, where we're going to talk about what happens when we send the book out into the world Mm -hmm. and a little bit about the resources and the things around that we created and will hopefully be useful to you. So we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to this third and final part of the special episode of the Leading Virtual Teams podcast. Um, I'm happy to report that at least one of our dogs has been so interested in what we've been talking about that she's deeply asleep in the dog bed just next to where we're recording this. Um, So, yeah, I hope you are still awake and with us (laughs) because now we're going to talk about the exciting process of putting the book out there in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the week when I put my book out there in the world. Um, What's your experience of that? That's something I've not done before. Yeah, it's a bit strange, I think, unless you're with a major publisher, you know, if you're Malcolm Gladwell or someone, they're going to publish your book everywhere and advertise it and put it in airports. A bit of the promote, a lot of the promotion falls onto you as an individual. Kind of. mm-hmm. um, and I think often we're not very good at that. So I think we're kind of all a bit overly modest, like, oh, I've written a book. Don't worry about it. No need to mention it. <laughs> and I think it's a bit of a shame after having spent all this time writing this thing, not to let people know it's there. But I think equally, we don't want to be just going on about it all the time. I think, you know, finding ways of promoting your book, you know, let people know about it is, is quite tricky. Uh, so mine came out in October. And I think I did a couple of webinars and um, uh, we did a radio show, didn't we? It's like... Um, yeah, DS106 for life. Yeah, it was, that was cool. That was fun, you know, and uh, sort of done some 
social media stuff and, and you were really instrumental helping with social media you're you're the canva whiz uh so you know you developed uh, lots of little uh, things to share on twitter and with qr codes and that so i just wondered you know what your feelings were about promotion on social media and what, what avenues you take well um i i must admit i'm finding this quite tricky mm -hmm. and i found it easier to help you with yours than i'm finding <laughs> helping myself with mine um i'm really thrilled Part of celebrating the launch of the book is a special launch webinar with the chair of the association, Helen O'Sullivan. And we're going to have a conversation kind of talking about the book in a context of, you know, the organization, what it meant to us in terms of the transition. And I'm really super grateful that, you know, Alt's publishing the book um, as an open access publication and Helen is giving up her time to kind of have that special launch celebration, which means a lot to me because ultimately it is inspired by the work for Alt largely. Mm -hmm. So that's been fantastic. Um, and obviously I've been keeping blogging. So um, there are a lot of blog posts out there. Um, first, you can visit the whole archive, obviously, but I'm also blogging new things and alongside the blogging i've started this podcast Podcasting. Um, yes indeed you're listening to me now um on leading virtual teams and i really hope that the podcast will make aspects of the book more accessible mm -hmm. and so i've started reading parts of the book um in a kind of rather amateur i think um audiobook extract aspiration mm -hmm. where i talk about extracts of the book that i read out and then kind of talk about um translating that into practice. So that is the kind of key things that I've been working on. Um, but I also have another exciting new project relating to the book that yeah. I'm really thrilled about. <laughs> so um, one of the things I really want to do is to translate the book into practice and help people apply it in their own context. Obviously, the book is based on examples from my experience. Um, but there are a lot of things in the book that can be translated into someone else's context, into someone else's practice. And so next spring, I'm going to run a free and open online course, which is going to do just that. Cool. And so, yeah, if you haven't already, sign up on my website. Um, and it's free to everyone and open to everyone. Um, so I'm looking forward to taking the book and the blog posts and putting that into a format which will help a very practical application. Sounds great. I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be really fun. And my recent experience of having the opportunity to work with Reclaim on their Hex for Hybrid Working yeah. course, which was very much about individual hybrid working practice, really inspired me. But this course is going to be quite different in that it is really going to be about leading virtual teams. Yeah. It's going to be about being a manager, being a leader, running an organization, a project, leading teams, um, and is very much looking at that lens um, in the hybrid and virtual workplace. Yeah, I think one of um, both of us have published our books uh, openly licensed, and one's with Athabasca University Press and yours with the Alt. One of the advantages, I think, of having them openly licensed is that you can use them in different ways and just point people to the resource. You don't feel like you're trying to sell them a product necessarily. So if you've got to buy my book, in order to take part in this or you can just extract part of it that you need and i think that kind of openness is, is really valuable now, with my 25 years yep. book um clint Lalonde and uh, laura pasquini did an all 
organize an audio book around it different people reading it and then a podcast series of people discussing each chapter i think in some ways that was more interesting than the book itself but it was possible because the book was openly licensed they didn't yeah. need to get the um, publisher's permission although publishers were uh, happy to be involved and i think so for both of us that open books kind of really have a, a different life of their own often i think they can go off and be used in different ways so it'd be exciting to see how the course goes well i'm really thrilled about it and you know it's also an interesting way to advance thinking like the book has certainly moved it on from the blog posts and now yeah the co course will move it on in my thinking again okay i think we're nearly out of time mm -hmm. um so any final words on leading virtual teams or metaphors of ethics <laughs> both are welcome here really i think they make it the superb companion piece to each other and they would look excellent on anybody's bookshelf next to each other as we're recording this and around to christmas <laughs> more could you use <laughs> your suggestion well thank you very much for joining me on this special episode um i've really enjoyed talking writing Pleasure. thinking reading and books with you and thank you very much to all of our listeners um hopefully you enjoyed the book and i'll include all the links to the resources that we mentioned in the show notes mm -hmm.